Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have uh, today someone really exciting, Ned uh, Tosson, who is going to tell us a lot about solar-powered solutions. So Ned Tosson, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So originally from, from Silicon Valley, and uh, as, uh, as I've told you in the past as well, when I came across your resume, I saw a lot of Stanford going on. So the yes. first thing that I that I saw that you study, Ned, is uh, Earth Systems. What is Earth Systems? Yeah, Earth Systems is a study of ecology, biology, geology. It's kind of a mix of a bunch of different uh, life sciences and uh, kind of Earth, um, you know, related sciences, uh, and it just smushes them all together into one degree. Um, and I actually ended up double majoring. I got a computer science degree, and the reason I kind of got uh, ended up in sort of different degrees. I, I ended up actually changing my major about eight times when I was an undergrad because I couldn't ever really specialize in one thing. Every time I started to specialize, I got nervous and then I would switch to something else. Um, and then as a result, like I ended up accumulating all these credits and I was able to sort of put those two degrees together. Um, but that was sort of the, the real reason behind why uh, I ended up having those, those degrees. But they're both, of course, areas of interest of, of mine. Got it. You know, something interesting as well that I found is that your your profile is like very much on the, I mean, it very much started on the engineering side and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But you then, after like getting some experience, you also went into getting your uh, business degree uh, mm -hmm. at Stanford again, your your MBA. Mm -hmm. So so why, 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 how did you get that? Like, hey, you know, I'm going to kind of like switch over here and, and really, you know, perhaps build my business profile a little bit. Yeah, it's funny because when I was an undergrad in college, the, a business degree is like the last thing I thought I'd ever get in life. So it would have totally shocked my younger self. Uh, I remember actually when I told my wife I wanted to apply to business school, she like almost fell off her chair. I mean, she was really, really shocked. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the kind of the reason, the journey I had uh, after I, I graduated, had my undergrad, had my engineering degree, uh, I worked as an engineer for about six months at a company that was doing really cool stuff in audio engineering. And it was, um, you know, really company doing exciting things, but I found that actually being an engineer, uh, while I was actually like pretty good at it, um, and decent at doing what I was doing, I, um, it kind of like 
dried up my soul in some way doing it. it just didn't feel like it was something I wanted to um, to do for life. And this was sort of the problem I had in undergrad too, where every time I started to specialize, I had this like panic feel. So, um, you know, my, uh, my wife, I think she was my fiance actually at that time, uh, was concerned about this is like, is this guy ever going to actually focus and do anything? Uh, but I ended up quitting that job after about six months and starting my own company with some friends. And I found that I like, I just loved entrepreneurship. It, like every day was different. You got to be sort of a jack of all trades, uh, you know, solve lots of different kinds of problems, engineering problems, business problems, people problems, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it kept um, me really engaged. And I felt like, ah, entrepreneurship, it's what I'm meant to do. Um, and I actually started a couple of companies in in the Bay Area. I never got like venture funded or anything like that. But, um, uh, you know, we brought some products to market. And I found that like one, there was a lot of stuff I just didn't know about how to run and scale a business to a big level. And two, you know, I really was, while I loved entrepreneurship, I wanted to find a way to leverage tech and entrepreneurship in a way that would actually have a real, like, meaningful impact in the in living in emerging markets. And that was sort of a, a, a another passion that had been developing over time for me. And uh, I was really drawn to this whole concept of social enterprise and social impact business. And um, when I was looking at uh, some of the business programs available at that time, uh, Stanford was had this, you know, social impact and social enterprise. Um, I wouldn't say focus, but they had some really cool uh, social impact businesses coming out of that program. And specifically, there was a uh, a course called Design for Extreme Affordability at the design school, which took business students and engineering students, put them together, and they come up with these really cool projects. Many of which were actually spinning out to become companies. And I was like, that is what I feel like I'm meant to do. So I only ended up applying there because, and, and now actually social impact businesses all over many, many business schools. But at that time, I really only found it at Stanford. So I said, you know, if it's meant to be, um, I'll get in. If not, you know, I'll, I'll do something else. But I ended up getting into the program and then really immersing myself in that world when I was in business school. Got it. And, and how, for the people that are listening, how do you define social impact? Yeah, really, it's about using, um, uh, business as a tool to make people's lives better. And, and really what I was, you know, social impact actually can be defined in many different kinds of ways. And, you know, a lot of businesses are actually creating a social impact to different degrees. But I think where, um, what I was really drawn to in this concept of social impact business or social enterprise was about business where the core mission of what we're trying to do is leveraging the forces, the powerful forces of the market of technology trends and using that to really create, you know, transformational change in people's lives and actually address some big world problems. Um, and, you know, specifically, I ended up getting really passionate while at business school about this problem of, you know, about a fifth of the world not having any access to power. And that's like a huge problem that businesses weren't addressing. And there's many other types of problems like that, that business and technology can be a really effective tool to address. Uh, but, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and businesses, you know, weren't filling in the gap at that time. So, you know, we wanted to do something about it. Got it. Got it. So, so then basically the idea of, uh, of delight, right. Which, uh, which eventually became, um, you know, the, this really incredible company that, that you're still involved in, with after 12 years, which is, which is remarkable. Yeah. The idea started in Stanford. So that's, that's how, when you got started, is that right? So, so what, what was yeah. the incubation process of, of delight? 
So um, when I was in business school, I had a, a clear focus that I wanted to graduate the program having like launched and started some kind of social impact business. So I had that sort of vague uh, idea. And I knew there was a lot of really exciting stuff happening at the design school uh, at, at Stanford around, you know, incubating these kinds of businesses. So uh, I was determined to get into this course called Design for Extreme Affordability. Um, and I wanted to get into it my first year. So, you know, I had time to sort of take whatever project and help get it funded before we graduated after our second year and um, didn't get in. But I was so like, just determined this is the whole reason I'm in business school. I actually just kept showing up to this class for like six weeks. And then finally they, nice. they let me in. Um, so I ended up getting <laughs> to do it that way. Awesome. So sometimes actually everything good that's happened in my life, it's like, just like persistence. <laughs> so that's, I, that's like a, yeah, it's all about persistence. So anyway, um, ended up in this course and there were a lot of interesting kinds of projects that were starting to be, uh, be formed. And um, there was a day where we were sort of forming our project groups. And there was another guy in my, my business school. His name's Sam Goldman. And this guy um, is also an American, but grew up in India and Pakistan and Peru. And his working career was all over Africa. Um, and uh, he had this experience when he was living in Benin, where his neighbor's son was burned in this kerosene accident. You know, people use kerosene lamps as their primary source of lighting when um, they don't have electricity. And this boy was like horribly burned in this kerosene uh, accident. And Sam kind of had this experience and realized like, this makes no sense. This is the 21st century. Like, why isn't anyone doing something about this and you know, providing better solutions? So he went to business school to kind of try to figure that out. And um, I kind of knew of Sam. I, you know, he was in some classes. He was a real sort of um, uh, very different from the other uh, business students just because of his background. Uh, but he was someone I knew from the like first minute I met him, like this guy is actually going to do something. He's not just a talk. He is going to do something that's going to change the world. So as his project groups were getting formed, uh, I actually remember, I can see clearly in my mind, it was like 14 years ago or 13 years ago, we formed this group. He had written this word energy on the board because that was his like interest area. And I'm like, you know, I don't know that much about that area, but I know Sam is going to do something. I want to work with that guy. So I ended up uh, walking up to him and we, we ended up forming this group with a couple other engineers. And that turned out to be the founding group of Delight. That's how actually we got started at the very beginning. And then um, we basically were incubated at the design school. We finished that course and we sort of came out with a very, uh, very crude prototype, very crude business plan, and then spent the, our second year of business school refining that. We ended up uh, getting a little bit of funding to be able to do some trips out to uh, the emerging markets where we wanted to launch a product, test products with customers. Um, and basically, by the time we graduated, um, had raised a little bit of seed funding that enabled us to launch the business. And that's really how we got started. Got it. So how many how many of you guys uh, in this group of, of engineers that you were mentioning? So it, it started out with four of us, um, myself and Sam, and then we had two uh, mechanical engineering students uh, also that were part of the group. And then a little later on in our second year, uh, we brought on board um, another person on the team. His name is Gabe Risk. And he was the husband of one of our classmates. And he was working at Sun as an electrical engineer. Uh, so started working like kind of nights and weekends to help us actually design a product that could function. <laughs> and right. um, by the time we got a little bit of funding and um, you know started the company, then he he quit his job at Sun and um, and joined the team. 
got it. And and being so many engineers, like uh, right off right off the start, did you did you guys find potential like I don't know like challenges because maybe you didn't have that much diversity on having someone from business or from sales or from stuff like that from different backgrounds. Yeah, at the beginning, really, it was about you know cracking the the product problem. So I would say with our business, there's actually three big challenges. There's one is cracking the product, getting the offering right. Two is figuring out how to distribute it. And three is how to finance it. So, um, you know, we could talk about those, but on the product side, you know, unless you get a great value for money product uh, that can actually survive in the real life conditions that our customers live in, you don't have a business in, you know, in the space we work in. And at that time, when we got started, really there were solar like panels connected with like these lanterns, but they would break in like a week in a village. Like they just couldn't survive or they were so expensive. It was just out of reach of a, you know, affordability of our customers. So, and basically with the engineers, they each had really different focus areas. So uh, CN, who was one of our mechanical engineers, he was um, just brilliant at designing like beautiful looking products that were tough, that were cost effective. He was just like brilliant at design. Um, Erica, who was one of the other uh, mechanical engineering students, actually had a very different focus, which was around human-centered design and really kind of getting those insights from the customer on what it is they need, what's going to you know draw them to it. And it's especially important for our business because we are not our customers. You know, it's not like if you're if you're designing stuff for Apple, you know, you're also probably going to use uh, Apple products like every single day. Of course, I actually use. D-like products in my house when the power goes out, but I'm not like a rural customer using this in a village every day. So we really need to go deep in understanding what those customers want and can't assume the things that we think are cool is going to be something they think is cool. So, so there was that. And then we had the electrical engineering side, which was about how to design it, you know, optimally from an electrical perspective. So I feel like we had very good division of labor among the team. And then over time, as we actually then finally brought a product to market, that could survive and, you know, be tough. Then we started bringing on sales resources. And as we started getting into like financing products that were higher end, we brought in resources that could do that. So I, I would say we've kind of built the company in those stages, but if we didn't have a product at the, you know, then we wouldn't be able to build those other things. So we sort of did it in sequence. Of course. So, so what, what ended up being the, um, the business model for delight? So the, the business model for us, which, you know, by and large has, uh, stayed pretty consistent over the last decade is we sell our products. Um, we want our products at the end of the day to be affordable to the end customer. So, you know, people often ask us like, how much do you sell through humanitarian channels or government or subsidized channels? Um, and it's very, very little, maybe it's like a couple percent of our business at the most really, uh, it's all about getting the product proposition right for the end customer. So really the, um, you know, all of our sales ends up happening through two main channels. One is retail shops. And in the markets we work in, you know, there's not like the Walmart equivalent that reaches the rural area. So these are very informal, disorganized channels that require uh, a lot of uh, on the ground field management. So it's a pretty significant kind of operational lift just to drive and manage that channel. And then the second is through partners and, you know, partnerships. So these might be, for example, microfinance organizations that provide loans for customers but then also can provide a product like this as a way to improve their life. And then they can add that product on to their loan, for example, uh, if they wanted to buy that product. But the, but the MFI in that case, the microfinance organization becomes the, the partner that brings that product to the customer. And then we, we serve that partner in, you know, in 
make sure that the product can get logistically delivered and all, all of that kind of stuff. So really it's through retail distribution and partnerships. That's how we sell the product to the customers. So what is the, um, what is the main difference of, let's say, building, like now that you're talking about the business model, let's say like a social enterprise like, like D-Lite, especially during the early days from, let's say, just building like a, the typical hyper-growth startup, tech startup that, you know, probably many of our listeners are familiar with? You know, it, 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 I'll tell you from our, our perspective, I know other social entrepreneurs have had different experiences, but it's really with the market that we were addressing, we really felt fundamentally that it was uh, a market failure, essentially, that was happening. This was a multi-billion dollar opportunity. Uh, we felt that we could build a billion dollar business in this space, uh, but the reality is just traditional investors, commercial investors weren't taking it seriously. So at the beginning, we raised uh, actually a blend of uh, some venture capital investors. So there were some who believed in it, although we got many, many rejections uh, from uh, from kind of traditional commercial investors. And then we had impact investors as well, who, uh, you know, I, I would say are, are similar to the venture investors in that they want to, you know, build a big business. But it's more patient capital at the end of the day. You know, they're, they understand that the markets that we work in are, are hard, uh, that things take time. And I think that was something that, you know, I, I really, and I think me and my business partner and the team, we, we underestimated at the beginning just how challenging it was uh, to actually make this happen in the kinds of markets that we were working in. And, you know, it just doesn't happen at the same speed as a lot of companies you know, that, that work in more developed environments where you have better infrastructure, you know, distribution channels that just have like wide scale distribution from the day one. So uh, what really kind of helped us was having these impact investors who understood the kinds of markets we worked in, who were patient, um, you know, and were willing to take, you know, a lower uh, or I guess a longer time horizon. Uh, but over time, as we've proven out the market and as we've gotten to scale, uh, now, really, the investor base has shifted to just traditional commercial uh, investors. And for us, you know, that's so central to actually achieving the mission of what we're trying to achieve, because we think if you're going to try to address a problem that's impacting you know, 1.3 billion people without power and then another billion people with highly unreliable power, that's sort of the segment of the market that we, we address. If you're going to do that at scale, it has to be commercially viable because you have to unlock capital, you know, at commercial level scale. It can't be just small scale grants or uh, like relatively small scale impact funds. So at the end of the day, for us to achieve that social impact uh, mission that we wanted to achieve, we felt like we had to build a company that was commercially viable. So for us, um, we didn't really ever have conflict between those those missions, uh, but what we were really clear about with investors from day one is like, this is the market and the customer segment we're going after. This is where the opportunity is. So like, look, we're not going to be going off and getting distracted by, you know, developing the perfect camping light might be a good market, but it's just not all that big. Um, and we need to focus on cracking these markets. And, um, you know, of course, if our current product works for the camping market, we'll sell it there, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. And uh, we were really upfront with the investors at the beginning that this is the market, this is what we're trying to do. And our, you know, we, the people who are joining our company were passionate about achieving that mission, but also understood that to achieve that, we had to make it commercially viable. So that's how we thought about it. And, um, you know, there was actually a lot less conflict between the commercial investors and the impact investors. than, frankly, I had thought there would be. 
um, I think there was pretty strong alignment. If anything, the only real um, uh, uh, area of conflict would just be in kind of time horizon and expectation of exit and their you know ROI for some of the earlier investors. But uh, I think now that the company's at a at a big scale and you know we're we're getting commercial investors, there's there's pretty strong alignment all around. Got it. And when we're talking about scale, like in your case, what was that point where where you and and perhaps the team really understood that you had gotten to the scale point where financing was needed? Uh, well, when you say financing is needed, do you mean um, uh, like there was like, a point in time in net yeah. where you are like this works and yeah. this is proven, and I know that if I let's say receive an investment of Y as an input, mm -hmm. I can get a, a, an output of X. Yeah, this, yeah. This for, for us, that really happened when we um, brought our first product to market. So we got a bit of angel funding at the beginning uh, and some seed investment. Um, shortly after we, we finished up school and then I moved with my wife to China to figure out basically how do we build this affordably, a high quality at scale. And then Sam moved to India, which was our first market to figure out how do we distribute this <laughs> at scale? Um, so at that point, you know, basically the seed funding was getting us enough money to actually get a product into production, uh, to get like a basic skeleton sales team. And to prove out that this thing works, and I think you know, for us, once we got to that that stage where we had products that customers love, they're willing to pay for, and um, uh, you know, we're actually was moving in the distribution channel. Um, that's when we realized that we had a real business, and it was going to be about getting financing to scale that up. Um, so that was kind of the point for us. It took us about um, a year and a half, I would say, um, or actually, yeah, about a year and a half, actually, after we got that first seed money before we got to a point where it's like, yes, this thing is, is ready to scale. Um, and you know, it still took like a lot longer than we thought even at, at that point, because you get excited when you see the product market fits there and you kind of see how distribution works, but then just the mechanics of scaling, uh, efficiently in these markets turned out to be harder than we thought. So, you know, I would say, um, it ended up taking longer to achieve that kind of execution of scale, but we could see that that path was there, you know, within like about a year, year and a half from that first seed funding. And product market fit, how, how were you present to the fact that you guys have product market fit? Yeah, this was something we really were obsessed about. Um, and actually we still are. Um, and, uh, we have a very, and this is really kind of ingrained in us from the design school where they had you know, our mentors are like some of the founders of IDEO and, you know, do we just got like amazing people around us that you know, knew about how to design products that delight the customer. And in fact, our name of our company delight, it derives from that's, you know, that's the emotion we want our customers to feel. And it's D dot light because we came out of the Stanford D school and they call themselves a D dot school. So it's sort of like a, a link back to our design thinking roots. So, you know, for us really to, I understand we had that product market fit. It was about, um, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with the customers, um, both with prototypes. Then when we had a final version of the product, uh, really uh, talking to them, understanding, you know, if they're referring the product to their friends, are their neighbors now buying the product? And just seeing the, you know, the level of excitement that would happen in these villages where these products would get introduced. Um, and we would see uh, in very early days, sometimes entire villages go from being in the dark 
to being totally upgraded to solar. Uh, and at that time, it was just solar-powered lights. Um, but the impact for these families, when you go from having no light at night or kerosene light to like bright uh, solar-powered uh, lighting, uh, you know, kids study longer. There's more productive hours of um, of use uh, that people can keep their shops open longer. They can make more income. There's all sorts of benefits for these families, and we just saw the transformation in these communities. We saw how excited the customers were about the product, and just that there was a willingness to pay. Um, for the products, you know, once people saw what they delivered. And at that point we knew, you know, there was the, the product worked in the market. Um, people liked it. And it was just now a matter of how do we make it available? Uh, how do we make sure the price point stays affordable for people? And um, how do we make people aware uh, that the products are even out there? Because I think a, a particularly big challenge with solar products when we started is solar actually had a very bad reputation in these markets. There would have been a lot of just junk solar that had been dumped into the market um, that vastly underperformed its spec. So people had a very sort of negative view of what solar was. So it required demonstration. It required uh, explanation. It required sometimes demos like, you know, where people could have the product in their home for a few days so people could really believe. So, you know, there was a lot of effort that had to go in to really convince customers that our claims were real. But once they understood the claims were real, and the product did what it said, then people would be you know, extremely enthusiastic. So we knew we had that product market fit. Then the challenge became about how do we actually distribute and market this at scale in a way that you know, is affordable because of the kind of high level of customer engagement required in the selling process. So one, one thing that, uh, that comes to mind, uh, Ned, is when we're thinking about the, the, um, the pricing here, because one challenge is that you are also dealing with um, with a segment that doesn't really have a tremendous amount of money. So when thinking about pricing for, for the products, I mean, what were some of the strategies that you guys used to really understand that you were hitting on the right, on the right price points? Yeah, for us, uh, and this is now in the early days when we were just doing this solar lanterns, um, it'd be a complete benchmark against the alternative because people were spending significant money on kerosene for lighting. The estimates range a little bit, but around 35 to $40 billion a year globally is spent on kerosene for lighting. So not a small number. Uh, people would buy this in sort of daily uh, increments, maybe every few days, every week. Um, and what we sort of determined at the beginning was, okay, if in three months the company, the, the product pay, pays for itself because our customers, because they have limited income, are like they're shorter term in their sort of time horizon and thinking. But if you can, in three months, have the product pay for itself, and after that, you're just saving money, uh, that's going to be pretty compelling. So that's how we set the benchmark from the beginning on affordability for our, our lights. Now, actually, um, we, we've lowered that um, uh, threshold in the sense that with our entry-level solar light, we, that we want to make affordable for everybody. Um, that one is about three weeks cost of kerosene now. So it's really a no-brainer for customers. As long as they believe <laughs> that your product delivers, um, you know, it's within three weeks. Customers, even very low-income customers, can afford to figure out how to save up, you know, four bucks, five bucks to get a basic solar lighting that's going to replace their kerosene lamp. Uh, and not only do they save money, but it's just a much better experience. Um, and there's all sorts of other, you know, there's health impacts and education impacts, all these things I've talked about. Uh, and then as we've grown into bigger products like solar home systems, then uh, those products we offer all on finance to the customer. And then it just becomes about what kind of deposit rate 
can the customer segment that you know for this uh, uh, product that we we developed can, can they afford? And then what daily rates is appropriate, and therefore what kind of financing period and length is appropriate for this kind of product? So we sort of backtrack it that way. And and in that case, it's not just about uh, benchmarking with kerosene, although we do that, um, but it's also about you know charging your phone because these are typically customers now with a mobile phone, or if it's a solar home system with like something like a fan or a TV or a radio, you know, you're adding a lot more value. So you can charge a little more on the daily rate, but you always have to be sensitive to the customer segment you're serving and what's actually affordable for them. Uh, and then of course, once the customer pays off the product, then everything after that is just like pure upside for them. Uh, so that's kind of how we we think about pricing, but pricing and affordability is absolutely key. And we have to just be maniacal around uh, making sure the pricing and affordability equations met for the customers or the business just doesn't work. And when you're thinking about uh, financing net, uh, again, you know, dealing with a segment that doesn't really have a lot of money. So I would assume that if you guys are engaging on on the financing of of, of this to these people, the default rates is, is something that that is a challenge as well. So what what were some of the strategies that you guys did to keep those default rates uh, low? Yeah, and this is something where, you know, when we started out um, financing the product directly to customers, we had high default rates, like, um, you know, in the teens. Uh, but now we've managed it to less than 3% in our markets. And I think the the way we've been able to manage that, um, so first of all, uh, we started working with microfinance organizations who could finance the products. And these guys are experts. They know how to finance products to customers. Um, the way they typically do it um, is they have joint lending groups where um, they'll make a loan to each of the people. And the groups are typically uh, groups of women who are found to be better payers in general in these markets. Uh, so they're groups of uh, women. And if one defaults or doesn't pay, the, all the other women in the group are accountable to pay for them. So there's very strong social pressure and their default rates are very low. So, so that model works. And that's uh, a channel, like I said, we work to sell a lot of our products and it's a, it's a very efficient way. And in that case, we're not actually doing the financing directly. It's our microfinance partner. Um, now, in other markets where the microfinance landscape isn't as built out uh, and isn't as deep, we've had to do the financing ourselves. And you know, we're, we're not a microfinance institution, but we have to build a lot of capabilities around consumer finance. But the key thing we've done to really enable uh, you know, making consumer finance work is we've um, built a technology called pay-as-you-go that allows the customer basically to pay via the mobile phone, uh, via mobile money, which is like ubiquitous in a lot of the markets we work in. So they make a, a payment to us, uh, maybe for a day worth of use or three days, depending on what they can afford. And then the, remotely, the product will either be locked if the, the customer has not paid, uh, or it will be unlocked. And then once the customer pays off the product in full, it will be unlocked permanently. And because the daily rates are set at such a rate where you know it's affordable to the customer, their alternative costs to get you know a similar experience would be would be higher. Um, then there's a very strong incentive to pay. So you know we've been able to sort of use technology and leverage the mobile money infrastructure in these markets. Um, which is frankly much more sophisticated and developed uh, than in developed markets because there's not like a formal banking system for a lot of these customers, but they use mobile money. So we're able to leverage that kind of tech infrastructure uh, in a way to enable customers to pay for these products, even though they're unbanked, even though they don't have a credit history. And then, you know, we've been able to develop mechanisms around 
kind of screening creditworthiness of customers around collections. So there's a lot of kind of capabilities we've had to build uh, as we've learned, but that's how we built out that that capability and what's really allowed us to scale up significantly in developing, you know, and bringing these solar home system solutions that are you know much bigger, more holistic solutions uh, to these markets. Really cool. And and going back to what you were um, discussing before, so patient investors. Mm-hmm. So what's the profile of a, of a patient investor? And, and the reason why I wanted to ask you this is because you reminded me, I mean, uh, during the, um, when I was either fundraising for myself for, or helping others, those funds, they always have a life cycle and they mm-hmm. obviously are reporting to their LPs and and eventually they need to return the money to their LPs and they put pressure Absolutely. on founders to, to do the exit. So when you're thinking about profile of a patient investor that you're going to be able to avoid that so that you can continue to focus on the long-term mission and, and vision of the of the company, what is the typical profile of a patient investor? Ned? Yeah, they, they range a, a bit, but I, I'll give you two you know examples of the t- like two main uh, impact investors that we work with. One is Acumen Fund. And they were structured in a way where essentially there were a, a foundation. Now, now they set up a kind of a more traditional kind of fund. But that time we got invested out of their foundation, which was working to make commercial returns, but they would kind of recycle those returns into other investments. So they didn't have, you know, a specific um, uh, hard exit timeline or kind of fun life end. But of course, they needed to, to demonstrate successes in their portfolio. But they didn't have the same kind of like funding life uh, requirement. Uh, the other one we work with is a Midyar network. This was funded, uh, founded by Pierre Midyar, um, and he's allocated you know a huge amount of his wealth to figure out how to uh, leverage that wealth to spark essentially you know. And Pierre was the founder of eBay, so he was figuring out how to create like the eBay's of emerging markets. You know, eBay's created amazing social impact, uh, creating lot, you know, empowering lots of small entrepreneurs around, um, around the world. And he wanted to figure out how to create those other kinds of eBay's in, let's say Africa, India, um, uh, and, uh, their fund it's, you know, his money basically. So it, it's, they don't really have a, a fun life requirement. They want to make commercial returns but they don't have that same kind of pressure on, uh, on timelines, but it can really kind of depend on the fund. Uh, some of them do have exit horizons, uh, that you have to meet, but they might have lower ROI thresholds than a traditional commercial investor. So it, there's a whole range of them out there. And, um, you know, there's not really a, I guess a one size fits all description of what they look like. Right. Right. And, and how much capital have you guys raised to date, Nit? Yeah, we have raised um, uh, a little over $100 million. Uh, that's a mix of equity and debt financing. Uh, so, you know, roughly 50-50, a uh, mix of both. And, uh, you know, as as we scale this consumer financing business, that debt component uh, and sort of banking financing is now um, kind of the focus is, is much less on equity uh, as the company is, you know, it's profitable and um, we don't have to use equity to fund operating losses, but it's really about funding uh, the growth of our, our financing business, which we can get through banks, but that's been an evolution over time for us. Right. And, and, and talking about the investors, I mean, you have there DFJ, you were talking about Midyear, uh, mm-hmm. and then you have Garas Technology Ventures, which I believe is, is Guy Kawasaki and Acumen, you were talking about it too. So what was um, your, your strategy or the process in order to get in front of these guys and close them? <laughs> um, well, we just, kind of went to everybody actually. And right. you know, what was amazing about being at Stanford is that 
for, you know, just because of the name brand there. And, you know, I had been, I tried to raise money for companies, uh, before, uh, I was in business school and it was, it was hard <laughs> to get a meeting. Uh, but when I was there, like VCs would just like go be guest lectures at classes and would like, just want to talk to people about what businesses they're working on. So I get in front of every one of those, uh, guys. And I would also just cold email people and like, Oh, you're at Stanford doing stuff. Okay, cool. Um, so I got a lot of meetings. I got a lot of practice pitching, uh, yeah. Sam and I, we got tons of practice pitching, a lot of no's, a lot of rejections, some like pretty constructive ones in terms of like how to improve how we think about pitching some very like harsh ones. Like you guys are going to fail. Like, like literally that was, we got an investor who told us like, you guys will fail. Like, please don't waste your life on this. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten the range, but we got, um, we got really good at pitching because we practiced so much. Um, and I was someone who, like, I don't, I don't like public speaking. I really, um, you know, I'm more of like an introverted person more naturally. I was like a coder and stuff. So I <laughs> going out and pitching to venture capitalists and stuff, I was so nervous the first times, but with, as with anything, if you do it enough, uh, and if you really believe in the business that you're doing, um, you know, you'll, you'll get better and better. And, you know, so we improved and what ended up happening, we got a couple angel investors. Uh, they were actually, uh, professors in the business school who are like really successful business people. And they just saw like how passionate we were about this thing. And we were constantly getting their advice. I'm like, Oh, you know, I'll put in 50 K. We got like some of those We're like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So we would get some of these guys. Uh, and then some of them had like really good, um, you know, brand names in the various. And we said, can we use your name by the way? Uh, when we talked to VCs, like, yeah, it's fine. You can use my name. So like that helped. And then, um, we, uh, right really shortly before we graduated, actually, we, participated in this competition. It was called the DFJ, J. Professor Jurvetson Venture Challenge, which is only open if you've won uh, your business, your school's business plan competition. That's your only eligible. And then if you get second prize, you get zero. But if you get first prize, you get 250K. So we found out about this thing at the, like, the last minute. Um, like someone, like a friend of the family forwarded to us. Um, I think Sam like kind of like forwarded along to me and delete it. It was like, uh, uh, but I, and I kind of looked at it. I was like, maybe we should try this thing. So we, um, we contacted the organizer. Um, I told him like, we hadn't won any business plan competition yet, but we're, we're very confident we're going to win Stanford. So you should let us into this one. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll let you in. I actually don't know why they let us in when I think about it. Um, <laughs> so then we, we came to this thing and, um, uh, I remember Sam, like he had to borrow a suit cause he didn't have one. And he was like on this, he biked to this place and was like all like dusty. Um, so we come there and we do this presentation, which is like a five or 10 minute presentation. And, um, they said, okay, well, after the lunch, as you guys know, there'll be a longer 15 minute presentation for the finalists. And we kind of like, oh my gosh, we looked at each other cause we hadn't prepared the second presentation. We were like, didn't know. So <laughs> while everyone was eating like sort of their fancy lunches at this like really nice swanky, you know, venture capital office, we were out in the parking lot, like putting slides together, like pacing around the trees, like practicing. And then, um, we got called in, um, and then they said, okay, we're, you know, the five finalists are, you know, one, two, three, four, and the fifth is delight and they will present now. So we, we came up and I, this was, I just think the grace of God where we came up and somehow we just gave, I, I think this is the best presentation we've ever given. Um, it was like, so it was so good for some reason. Um, and you know, we didn't really have much. We had like a kind of crappy prototype and the other businesses were doing some really cool stuff. Um, but 
you know, for whatever reason, they believed in us. They kind of went and deliberated and they said, we have decided let there delight. And they sent us, they had this huge check. It was like, you know, this like four foot long check that they handed to us. And we, we were just like completely in shock. Um, and from there, um, I, I had actually known the guys at garage technology ventures. Um, I had pitched them actually some of my other businesses before, but you know, they're like, Oh, stay in touch. So I ended up having breakfast with, um, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, uh, managing directors there is Bill Reichert, uh, one of Guy Kawasaki's partners. And I had breakfast with him at Hobie's and I like told him about this, I, you know, the idea. And I told him he knew about the 250 K that we want from DFJ and at the end of the breakfast. He's like, you know what? We'll match it. And I was like, what? So for us, this was like, you know, we were excited about getting a few thousand dollars here and there. And, yeah. you know, we were, and just all of a sudden we had half a million bucks. Um, so that's actually how we, we got started. And then, the last piece of it was we ended up getting uh, Acumen Fund on board, Gray Matters Capital. There were a couple other investors, and then Nexus Venture Partners sort of came on board. I think once people see that you have others believing in you, then yeah. it makes it a lot easier. So that first 250K, uh, I feel like for us, once we got that, it made it much easier to get the rest. But the first 250K, I mean, we must have talked to over 100 investors, and we must have just practiced pitching and you know redoing the slides. I mean, just for a long time. I didn't spend much time in classes. It was like, really, it took, took forever to get that right. But it was really good training for us because it really told us, taught us how to, you know, sell our business in an authentic way and um, communicate to investors. And, you know, we, we learned a lot in the process and it, it made us better. That's great. And I always say that, that as a founder, you're kind of like swimming in, um, in an ocean full of sharks around you and, and eventually, and the sharks being the investors and eventually one of them is going to bite and then everyone else wants to bite. It's unbelievable. Yes. You just need yeah. to swim to stay afloat. That's the only issue. I know. Yeah. So, yeah. It's so true. So, so Ned, I wanted to ask you so that, so that people that are listening, get an idea. How, how big is the, the delight operation today? Yeah, we, we've grown. So, um, we set a goal when we started, which uh, was a crazy goal um, and no idea really how to achieve it. But we wanted to have 100 million people using our products by 2020. Um, and as of today, we're at 92 million and wow. 92 million people using our products uh, and whose lives have been transformed by these these products. It's just like it's so awesome. And by end of 2019, one year early, we're going to hit 100 million lives impacted. So and that's sort of like our main metric that we use are like to determine if we're successful. And that's incredible. Like just the scale of impact. It's still, when I, when I visit our factories and just see the quantity of like stuff going out, I'm like, my mind gets boggled sometimes. Like, how are we, how are we selling this many? Like, um, <laughs> so, cause I remember the days when selling like a few hundred was like really exciting. Right. Um, so, uh, so that's been awesome. And we've been, you know, we're present and our products are being sold in over 60 countries. Um, we have uh, about a thousand uh, employees working for us, and on top of that, we have um, you know anywhere between three thousand to five thousand commission-based agents, also you know making their their incomes off of selling delight products in in different markets. And then there's actually just thousands more who are kind of indirectly uh, employed by us by running retail shops or you know people who are not on our payroll but people connected into the the delight ecosystem. So it's really become significant business. We're, uh, doing around hundred million in revenue uh, a year at this point, growing at a really fast clip, like around, you know, anywhere between 40%, 50% a year. 
Um, so it's been, it's been really exciting. And I feel like, um, you know, what happened for us, we had so many ups and downs along the way. So I don't want to sort of overly paint like a rosy picture. Um, you know, it was really hard to get to this stage. There were many, many times where I was just, it looked like the company was like, had a month of life left and that was it. And, you know, I think it, uh, you know, just the persistence of, and the perseverance of getting through those challenges, you know, even if you don't know exactly how you'll navigate through just sort of like being steadfast and really believe in that, the overall mission, uh, and being willing to go down with the ship, you know, frankly, um, and having that level of commitment was really, really what enabled us to pull through some of those, uh, dark patches and, you know, enable us to get to the, you know, the business to where it is today. And of course, at all levels of scale, there's always different kinds of challenges, new kinds of challenges. And as a founder, especially, you know, we're always having to constantly evolve because running a, you know, a hundred person business or a 10 person business or a thousand person business is very different. Um, and, you know, I found that I've been constantly having to learn and delight. I mean, it's the biggest company I've ever worked for is the reality. And, you know, it, it continues to be as a company grows. And, um, but you know, it's just been an amazing experience and, uh, we've been able to surround ourselves with just such an amazing team and, and board and supporters. So it's, we're in a good place and it's, um, and it's a marathon it takes, you know, a lot of perseverance it takes, um, a lot of hard work and, uh, definitely had to go through, you know, many different valleys along the way to, to get here. What a ride, what a ride, Ned. So, so the question that I always ask our guests is if you could go back to the past, Okay, knowing everything that you know now and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, well, it's hard to confine it to one. Okay, I'll, I'll try to confine it to one. I, I would have a few. But the, <laughs> one, I think the one thing, as many mistakes I've made, uh, I think the one thing I would, I would really counsel is that it really is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I think that you know, what I've found is, um, you know, entrepreneurs, we're optimistic. We think success is always right around the corner. And, you know, we always think things are going to happen faster than they actually do. I mean, this is sort of like with any business plan, it's never really what ends up happening. And, um, you know, what, what, I, okay, here's something I've learned on the technology side about batteries. So, and this will link to your question. So batteries, the way they work, if you deplete them, uh, to let's say 0% charge, um, you know, and then you recharge them up, the battery is healthy and you can cycle it many times, but a battery, you can do something to it called deep discharging where you take it to zero and then you actually can suck more energy out of that battery, even when it's at zero and you can get energy out of it, but you're fundamentally like destroying the lifetime of that battery. Um, and your battery cycles will not last very long. So this is like a common problem that has, happens with products that use batteries. People don't manage the battery well. So I think humans in some ways are like batteries in that we can get deep discharge also, um, where you can be at zero and keep somehow like going and giving energy, but there's a cost to that. And I think entrepreneurs need to be aware of that. They need to be aware of like their families, um, you know, how their work impacts them Their you know, if they have kids, how that impacts their, their kids, their friends, how it's impacting their health, because if you want to build a company that is at big scale, that has big impact, um, you know, and it has a successful outcome, you know, the company needs you at the end of the day. It needs you to be functioning at full capacity uh, and not deep discharge. So you know, there's always going to be some crisis moments where you need to, you know, dig deep. But 
you have to bound those. And for the most part, you have to be in a place where you're operating a level where you're not deep discharging yourself because you are needed for the long term if your company is going to be successful. I love it. I love it. So, uh, and, and, and by the way, I know that the ramen and, and, and working nonstop for weeks was kind of like the Valley mentality, but, but things mm -hmm. are changing. And, and to what you're pointing to that, if you don't take care of yourself, nothing is going to work. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Well, I love it, Ned. Well, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Best way, uh, visit our website. So uh, it's delight, D-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Uh, you can learn about all, sort, uh, all the kind of stuff we're doing. You can contact us there. You can even find out where to buy our products in the U.S. So although I uh, said that we're not designing products for the camping market, our products are available on Amazon, and they are great for camping <laughs> for the people who are listening. So you can check that out. Um, and yeah, just, um, you can learn about what we're doing, uh, learn about the, and you know, we have some links from our website. You can learn about kind of the impact we're, we're making and the social impact space in general. Because one of the things I'm, I get really excited about actually is entrepreneurs and, and people, not just entrepreneurs, people in business who get excited about seeing like, oh, wow, business can actually be used as a tool to create like awesome social change and, you know, change in, uh, people, the quality of life of people who are living, without a lot of means, living at the base of the pyramid. And if this can be an inspiration to you to start your own uh, social impact venture or be part of one, you know, I think um, that's just an awesome, uh, awesome thing. And I get really inspired hearing about people who learned about Delight and then went off and, and did something on their own and, and created impact in other areas. That's amazing. Well, you're definitely making a big, big difference, uh, Ned. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thank you. It's been been great. Really enjoyed talking with you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.